0: Here he is, Mr. Hirsch Rapoon. An interesting last name, I might add. Rapoon.
1: Where yes. does that come from? It's of German origin originally. And it was originally Rebhun R-E-B-H-U-N, which means partridge in German. And when my family came over at Ellis Island, there was no equivalent to a BH sound. So they changed the name to a PH sound and said, well, there's a pH sound. And so it was changed to, to Rapun. although because it's so hard to pronounce, people would pronounce it Rafun, Rafin. And so my dad really liked the the closest representation, which was Rapun, and kind of drilled it into us and really stood by it. But it's, it just is one of those things. People don't hear it enough. Yeah. If it were a really common last name, it wouldn't matter about the PH, people would learn. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's a uh, silent H, and it's uh, for accent on the E, and it's food Well, y- um, you know, you can claim to
0: be one of the original members of the Partridge family, at least the German we did. side of it.
1: And, uh, yeah, you we did to- do that. We were the German Partridges. We that's were right. we were trying to do a show, but, uh, you know, the network was, uh, you know, but to them it wasn't so funny.
0: Yes, So, uh, but you took a striking resemblance to... A mature Danny Bonaduce. Just <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, well, as you can see uh, by our little bit of banter going back and forth, both Hirsch and myself have significant backgrounds in comedy, various styles of comedy. And we talked about this ad nauseum on your podcast, the Yes Brand podcast, which is newly released. I mean, y- you did your first five episodes premiere. Of yes. Like a week ago.
1: Yeah. So uh, Thursday, December 1st, we launched the first five episodes. They're now on all platforms, you know, Apple, Spotify, Google, all that stuff. And on Pantheon.fm, which is the hub of my shows and many, many other great shows. So yeah, you can find a Yes brand there and my Truth Tastes Funny podcast, which is my other other show.
0: Well, very cool because uh, as you know, both of us share the same love and passion for podcasts because it's been such a tremendous stage for mm-hmm. people who have the same similar styles like you and I, which is what I would call the live performance style. Podcasting is fantastic for that. The only thing that might yeah. be a little bit better, stuff like Clubhouse, but I'll be honest, I, I don't waste any time on Clubhouse because the shelf life of it is not worth the amount of time that I would have to spend on it. You do a podcast. And it goes up on a shelf, and people can pull it down every single day, any place, wherever they are, around the world, and it has this tremendous sticking power. I've still got people reaching back four years to my original podcast of the Nonfiction Brand Podcast, and so I'm, I'm continuing to get great value out of it. Yeah. You, is your experience with podcasts similar or different?
1: No, I, I love it for the for the same reasons. I love the fact that there, that it's a kind of part of a series, even if the, even if the conversation isn't always, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not serialized, but at the same time, I love the fact that people can just scan through all of the different episodes on truth. Days funny, for example, we just launched the 41st episode and people can just go in and look at, and I can do that with other people's podcasts. I can come to it late, you know, and just become a fan and more people are sticking with it keeping their podcast going. It's, as you know, DP, it takes a lot of time and effort to sustain a podcast, but it's a great platform and and people are coming to it for a reason.
0: Yeah, that's very true. I was, I'm reminded of a quote from one of my recent guests who said, you should always look for something that is so fitting or aligned with who you are as a person, it's almost effortless. Well, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of effort that it takes to do a podcast, if it's not your personal style. But for me, uh, and we talked about this on your podcast, I'm a writer who doesn't like to write. I mean, I'd rather do a podcast and spend four hours editing a one-hour podcast Or I don't even know why. It's probably the the love of the performance aspect of it, but also the technical aspect. Believe it or not, it's kind of fun to have to problem-solve a podcast. Like, ooh, there's some weird noise there. I wonder how I can get rid of it. Can I EQ it out? Yeah. I find that interesting. Whereas I find blog writing, not my cup of tea.
1: Okay. That, that I'll give you that, you know, I, I was, uh, I was just telling one of my daughters, we were talking about writing and, and I was saying that when, when I was trying to do blog articles, because I was the writer on the team, you know, of, of partners at this marketing agency. And I was, you know, we were just launching and I was the writer and it was like, okay, you're the creative, you do all the blog, do the blog articles. And I'm like, I don't want to do blog. I don't. I don't want to do blog articles talking about what we do and all that. I. I will write about our work. I'll write about things that interest me. But I don't want to. I don't want to do articles just for SEO and all that. I really resisted it. Doing something you don't like can be really painful.
0: Yeah. Well, I got to applaud you for your uh, instinct there. What you said that <laughs> I heard was I had no interest in it. Well, yeah. guess what? You were thinking like an audience member, which is, am I interested in this or do I have no right. interest? It wasn't, well, this is score will with the SEO lords of, you know, Kobe. Yeah. it yeah. was more, it's not going to be interesting to an audience member. And I get into fights with clients and individuals about that all the time, which is, yeah, we're saying what you want told, but it's not what the audience wants to understand or wants to engage with or will be emotionally and intellectually triggered to actually engage with in a meaningful way. And I got to tell you, audience members are more important than clients every time when it comes to what you need to communicate, especially when you're trying to build a brand. Because brands love to say, but I tell you, it takes the culture to actually do what the brands say. And if your company culture doesn't have the ability to fulfill the brand's uh, talk by doing the walk... You're misaligned. So how does this relate to the core premise of the Nonfiction Brand Podcast? Well, it's all about small business branding and personal branding, because if you ask me, personal brands are small businesses and vice versa. There's no difference. If you have under 50 employees, that business is based on your human DNA, and you better had communicate like that. Now, I know you, based on everything I've seen you do, you agree with that wholeheartedly and i can tell that because the whole yes brand kind of tent pole that you've got set up now for a lot of your activity for those people who didn't take improv class ever in their life anybody who does know what yes and is looks at your yes brand idea and go oh i get it very smart idea so very quickly from your point of view what does the improv technique term "yes
1: and" to my to my approach of what I do, or you want me to explain what it what it means in the in the traditional form? Answer it as you would like. Answer as you would like. Okay. So the the rule in in improv is that we accept the offer that the scene partner or other other improviser is giving us. We we don't want to. They don't. We don't want them to say. You know, Martians landed in the front lawn, and we say no, they didn't, because that's that's the end of the scene. We have to say yes, and they were wearing Prada suits. That's the kind of we're accepting their offer, and we're building on it, and it keeps a very bouncy, positive flow going in any kind of imaginative you know scene that you're creating. So, with Yes Brand, the notion is that first of all, there's a there's a, a connection to comedy but I'm not a specifically or limited to being a comedy creative. So the stuff that I do doesn't have to be funny. It can just as easily be very emotional or, or, or heartfelt. The situation and the message call for, you know, a certain type of genre. So it's not that it's only comedy, but I have learned that I react to stuff, to clients, to their situation, to their view of themselves and my reaction is the and. So yes, brand would be, I want the brand's message to be a reflection of what they brought to the party and what I saw and added to.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense because one of the things that I'm sure you've run across in your career is the idea that creatives at ad agencies, marketing firms of all sorts, they go to a client, they talk to that client, and they start talking about the client's goals and wishes and desires and and all that stuff. And if you're a creative like me, you're going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I understand that, I understand that. And what you say you want is not necessarily the same thing as what I think you need. Consequently, I'm going to take, yes, I'm going to validate everything you've said. I'm going to use that information as the kind of foundation for everything moving forward. But I'm going to add to it. I'm going to give you my best work because... Again, anybody who's listened to this podcast more than five times has heard me say, just like Walt Disney and the whole plusing (laughs) system at Disney, where I make it as good as it can be, I give it to you, you take that and you plus it, you make it even better, you yes and it, and it keeps getting better and better and better and better and better and better. And anybody who loves going to Pixar films knows exactly what I'm talking about because my children are all older now, but... I was around long enough with them to have to watch Monsters, Inc. over and over and over again and Finding Nemo over and over and over again. And normally as a parent, you'd go, oh my God, my brain's going to drip out of my ears. Except there's always something in the frame that you didn't see the first 15 times that you saw it. And you discover it the 15th time and you laugh your head off because they are rewarding Repeat viewers with great stuff that was built by that yes and, yes and, yes and, plus, plus, plus stuff.
1: Yeah, very good point. Very good point because I, you know, my kids range in age. And so I've had to see generations, like I had to go back through The Lion King again with the younger kids, go back through all the all the other films, Monsters, Inc. included. And I appreciate the effort the filmmakers made to really create, things that, that the parents can appreciate so that we don't have to sleep through the same thing 20, 20 times. You know, sleeping through it, even the best movie, is, is part of being a parent. But, you know, I slept through Frozen the first time, but I also slept through Born Supremacy with yeah. my kids. So if you can sleep through that, I think, I think that, you know, you can sleep through anything. But the, the stuff that's in those movies, Inside Out is, is another one that I watched, you know, over and over with my youngest daughter you know, uh, Zootopia, all those, all these, all these films that, that really have something special, the Toy Story films, of course. And that makes, that makes our experience much, much richer because they're adding upon adding and, and, and exact as you described. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and if you think about it, the, if you were a fly on the wall in that producer room, when they're talking about what their next animated feature is going to be, it could be, Hey, we need another kid oriented feature. Let's, gear it toward 8 to 13. That might be stretching it to 13, but still, there are a lot of 13-year-olds who still love this type of stuff. And so let's really, really focus on that. And they go, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, age of 13, great. yeah." Yeah. Mm -hmm." And then they say, and that's where we'll start, but we'll plus it so that we can bring in the young teens. We'll plus it even more to bring in the young adults, Will plus it even more to bring in grandma and grandpa who actually love watching it with the kids. <laughs> you know, and what they do is they create not something that's a throwaway, watch it once. It becomes yeah. intergenerational in its appeal yeah. and engagement. That is what I mean by paying attention not to what you want to say or sell, but what the audience wants to engage and buy. And yeah. so I, I I love your approach to it. And I want to talk specifically about your specific personal brand because Hirsch Rappoon, interesting last name, got to explain it every single time you're out there. <laughs> but guess what? That's part of your brand. You yeah. have to explain it every time you're out there in a way that people remember
1: you because, frankly, it's one of the things that makes you kind of a little bit more interesting than John Smith. Yeah, why well, I didn't change my name to John Smith. Well, also, there aren't so many Hirsch's that you know, that that I'm forced to always say the last name. That's kind of a nice thing in that Hirsch Repoon is better than John Rappoon because with the name like John Repoon, I would always have to say what, what my last name is. And there is a John, which is another fascinating thing. He, he does not appear to be related to me at all and can't remember where he lives. I corresponded with him. Through, I came across him through LinkedIn, actually, and somehow have the same name and and it's and it's it's bizarre but there he has to explain it every single time and whatever his story is and with hirsch i can kind of well sometimes exactly. sometimes just be known as hirsch exactly if
0: someone says hey i was talking to hirsch they aren't going to say which hirsch right and that's frankly why i go by dp again listeners to this podcast will recognize the fact that dp stands for david and paul or dark prince depending on my mood And which is part of the ongoing joke. Dark Prince Knuton. Yeah, well, exactly. I always tell that joke because it's memorable. And like any good stand-up comedian, you have to tell it like it's the first time you're telling it in order to get the joke to really land correctly. So, yeah. Is it a little bit of a conceit? Sure. Is there a reason for it? Absolutely. I was going to work at D.D.B. Needham in Chicago, And the creative group I was in got a phone call from the secretary there saying, hey, we're getting business cards for you. What would you like on them? I said, "Uh, how about my name? David Knuton. Yeah. And they said, ah, a little bit of problem there. You're going into a creative group with four other Davids. So you might want to go with something else or we'll give you a nickname. So I said, no, 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 no. I'll I'll pick DP. And (laughs) it's now stuck. It's my kind of professional stage name, if you will. And I have a love-hate relationship with it because eh, it's a little, a little bit. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's. I'm not going to say it's inauthentic because it is authentically me, especially in a business professional setting. But if my wife ever called me DP, I would probably have a. We'd, we'd be in counseling for that because uh-huh. uh, you know I, I feel like it's a different level of intimacy or lack thereof. Not that I don't think well, yeah. this uh, listeners of this audience. I appreciate you greatly. You can call me DP every day of the week and I'll love you for it. So don't get me wrong, but just understand that the desire to have a unique name can sometimes grate on the person you are, but can really be helpful to you professionally.
1: Well, (laughs) this is a, this is a subject that I, that I have spent way too much time thinking about because number one, when I was a kid and my full name is Herschel, my middle name is David. So Hersh David is my full first and middle name, and I didn't like Herschel and ruled it out altogether as a kid. And my sisters would call me Heshy, my parents might call me Heshy Hesh, so Hesh became the name that I went by among all my friends and family, and I used it to the exclusion of ever really using Herschel. Teacher might call me Herschel, but I didn't like Herschel or Hersh. I didn't like any of that. And my mom would say you could use H D. Repun, if you become a writer, H.D. Repun would be a cool... I didn't want that either. So as I entered the business world, Hesh Repun was on my business cards. Hesh was my... I even got in trouble with the IRS because I had put... My accountant was filing my taxes as Hesh. And then I finally was like, you know, my real name is Herschel, right? And he's like, oh my God, I don't even know how they've been taking it all these years. <laughs> it was like, there's no social security number associated with that. But it was so ingrained. Then when I started doing stand-up comedy again... About 10 years ago, I had come back to it after a real long, pretty long hiatus of just working in advertising. I went by Hirsch because none of the MCs could figure out hash, as you as you probably know, MCs are the least interested in who they're bringing up, and oh, yeah. they really don't want to struggle with it. So you know they're going to accept your first answer or whatever is easiest. So hash, for some reason, even though it sounds like it's spelled like it sounds, H-E-S-H, pretty simple. They couldn't get it i said hirsch and hirsch they they did get like hirsch just made it sense hirsch they could hirsch i never asked for it. i never gave them my last name i never used it it was just hirsch and that stuck and i started preferring it now same thing with my wife my wife calls me hash and my wife introduces me as hash no matter what i like i'll be like i'll have rules oh you know for when we're meeting parents from the school, you want to introduce me. Hash, it's fine, as long as I'm not going to do business with them. If I'm going to do business with them, it should be Hirsch. And if it's anybody that has any kind of formal connection to me, it should be Hirsch. And I want them to say Hirsch. And she, but but she, that's too much to ask of a, a, a spouse. They, they don't give a shit about that. stuff. No, pardon, uh, my, yeah. pardon my French. No, you, you're fine. They get to call you whatever they want. They call you what they want. And she will sometimes say Hirsch or Herschel, but that will be a for a specific use. That will be to kind of have fun with the idea of, you know, or like my parents did and possibly yours as well. When you do something wrong, your full name comes out. Your full name is, is used as though they're telling the government and everybody around you, this has been a very bad boy. And he's now we're announcing Herschel David. Herschel David is bad enough. Herschel David Repoon would be even. Oh yeah. Even more. I I don't know what I would have done to be Herschel David Rep Herschel David Repoon get in here right yeah. now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, believe me. David Paul was the worst it got for me. I guess uh, to try to underline this conversation and make some sense of it is naming's really important. No matter what your brand is, whether you're trying to build your personal brand or your product brand. And one of the old sayings that I had drilled into me as a young copywriter was, the minute you're tired of your advertising, great. They're finally starting to see it. So mm-hmm. you don't willy-nilly change stuff. You, in fact, if you're a, a big brand like Coca-Cola, you don't change anything at all, if you can possibly help it. Because a pillar of your branding is actually the authenticity of that brand, You know, going all the way yeah. back to 1886. If all of a sudden they decided, well, they actually tried. They tried to come out with new Coke. Remember new Coke? New Coke, yeah. And what did the market do? It forced them to come back to the old Coke because they didn't want anything new. I like to call Coke grandma. Everybody loves grandma. Yeah. She's she's sweet, but a little acidic. You know she And no one messes with grandma. <laughs> if you have that right. type of brand relationship where people say, you don't mess with the brand. Wow, you know you're actually getting way past the neofrontal cortex of the brain and getting all the way back to the brain stem when it comes to emotional feelings and stuff like that. So let me ask you, Hirsch, you are doing stand-up. You are working in advertising and marketing. Describe the Venn diagram. You got that circle that is stand-up. You got that circle that is advertising and marketing. How much overlap of those two circles is there? Or is your sweetest of sweet spots in that intersection between the two?
1: Yes, my, my sweetest of sweet spots is really that cross-section, that intersection. And that was another reason why I, I kind of decided to, to build up the Yes Brand brand. Because I wanted the connection to comedy, at the very least, to be completely innate and be, and be part of my DNA, and I wanted the branding and the humor to coexist really comfortably. And so I did it for a long time with the stand-up. I was like, okay, well, one helps the other. It's a facet of my personality. I don't get out and do stand-up in a boardroom and it's, you know, whatever. But it's good. it rounds me out. Well, I was kidding myself because the fact is who I am is an amalgam of things that I like to do. And the branding and messaging and copywriting and storytelling, brand storytelling is all stuff that I have done for my entire adult life and that I do well, I believe. So it's so much a part of me. I needed to conform my environment to recognize that instead of trying to maintain two different environments. An environment in which I'm a creative and a brand storyteller and a brand strategist in an environment in which I'm an entertainer.
0: That's interesting because there's been a lot of HR people especially talk about the desire to have a business culture where everybody brings their whole selves to work. It sounds that, like that's what you're trying to do and doing yeah. it successfully from what I can tell. That you don't say, oh, I'm going to leave my comedy hat at home. It's actually one that you wear every day and use judiciously. I mean, come on, let's face it, if you're if yeah. you're presenting, well, let me just speak from my personal experience. One of the things I always told younger members of my team on presentation day where we're coming in to show new concepts or campaigns, whatever, I always said, you have to understand, this is the best day of their week. They've been staring at spreadsheets, they've been dealing with manufacturing issues, they've been doing stuff in the uh, you know in the parking lot cuz it needs resurfacing all this crap they've had to deal with and now the circus comes to town they get to see exciting new ideas some of which scare them but intrigue them so we had better present these things in a way that entertains them as well as intellectually engages them and by the way if you always entertain when you show up you're never going to be in a review because the client is going to go, we love those guys. Why would we get rid of them? The only time, <laughs> the only time you really get lose them as a client is when a new marketing director comes in and brings in their favorite circus performers.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and the idea of being, you know, the trained monkey thing, the performing monkey, you know, be, be funny, do the, do the, so many people, so many comedians or personalities take umbrage at that. Like, Like, that's an insult. It really isn't. just is that comedy, as you started saying when we we began this conversation, improvised stuff is immediate. We don't know whether it's going to be funny. We don't know how funny. We don't know why. It's happening in the moment. That's where the best comedy happens. To bring somebody in and say, oh, he's going to be funny for you. She's going to amuse you and entertain you is just kind of looking for, for disappointment. But I don't take offense to it because it means that they're wanting that, as you say. They're they're really they're really starving for that entertainment, that joke, that lightness. So just keep that in in mind. I I'll tell myself or others in my field just keep in mind that they they want that. They really need that. And and it's not it's not an insult to be to be told that you are entertaining. And by the way, entertainment can include tragedy and drama
0: and everything else. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things ever in the history of television was the fact that John Hamm as Don Draper in Mad Men gave me something that whenever anybody said, so what do you do in advertising? I said, have you seen the carousel episode of Mad Men where he introduces the Kodak carousel projector? Go on to YouTube. I'm telling you, nonfiction brand listeners, if you've never seen it, Go onto YouTube, type in Mad Men, The Carousel, and then watch that scene. That is the quintessence of what I mean by entertainment. Entertainment can be tragic, Hamlet, or it can be hilarious, like pick your favorite stand-up comedian. It's a continuum. And as a performer, you need to be able to play all those different colors. Maybe you're better at some than others, but you need to have the range and the breadth of capabilities to do all that stuff. So again, Mad Men, the carousel with uh, John Hamm as Don Draper, doing what creative directors do best, excite clients by entertaining them. And they may be laughing, they may be crying, doesn't matter. You got past their no brain and got to their,
1: oh my God, I love it,
0: part of the brain.
1: Yeah. There isn't a, there, there isn't a, you know, we, we sometimes our audiences sometimes marvel at the sight of a comedian being a really gifted, dramatic actor. You know, that's not, that's not surprising to me in most cases. We, we love to affect people. We want them to react and feel and get chills and do have all those reactions. Laughter is, a, is so specific. Laughter, laughter is a you know, that's a very specific reaction, if you think about it. Because someone could be touched, or someone could be charmed, or someone could be warmed by a scene or something like that. When you're on a stage and you're doing stand-up, there's only one real goal. You want to elicit that laughter. And you and if you're doing a sitcom or something, you need to elicit, you need to set up and punch, set up and punch, set up and punch, or do dry humor and you're doing something a little more Bob Newharty and you're still reeling them in, and the goal is still laughter. But I, I remember at a young age loving M.A.S.H., the show M.A.S.H., because to me, it captured everything about performing and writing that you could want. You know, it, was, it could be funny, it could be hysterically funny, it could be madcap, it could be ridiculous, but the circumstances in which they said it allowed it to be so heartbreaking and so palpable just the emotion that was there as a result of the reality they created around themselves. Well, Um, and that that reality, even though
0: it was based on fiction, became so real because the audience wanted to accept the stories that they were being told. And they, as long as they felt real. You know, do you want a, a rapper John who's drunk operating on you? No, probably not. But we all know yeah yeah, he's a surgeon but he drinks and but, uh, but, but we're not going <laughs> to worry about that too much. Klinger always wearing a dress, uh, trying to get yeah. a section 8 out of Korea. Never worked. So why is he still wearing a dress in season 4, you know? Doesn't matter. It's part of Klinger and who he is and you know, all those characters you learn to love them because you recognize the truth of who they are as characters and you know yeah. what you can expect of them and because they always deliver that you build affinity and one of the things that brands do very very well is build affinity i was talking about that today with one of my colleagues saying and we work in a nonprofit we often focus only on donors especially high dollar donors you know our our favorite donors are the ones that yeah, you know, the ex-wives of rich industrialists <laughs> who want to give away millions of dollars. Well, that's great. There aren't that many of them. And if you're going out for whale, you have to array your assets and resources to go whale hunting. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean we should ignore everybody else, especially younger people. We want to build affinity between them and our nonprofit. Why? They don't have any money now. In five years, they might have a little bit. In 10 years they might have more in 15 years they probably do have significant dollars that they could invest or and by the time that they're in the later stages of their life they're like i want to give it to you rather than my wastrel son who has won't even call me on my birthday creating affinity between yourself and your audiences is incredibly important and that's something comics do every time because let's face it if a comic can't build affinity with an audience; they aren't going to be on
1: stage very long. Unless they're Andy Kaufman, then they then they then they can they can build enmity and some kind of uh, controversy, and still. Uh, but the 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 fact is that when people can do that, it's a testament really to their immense likability that they can they can be jerks or be or push that button, and the audience will go with them either out of fascination, st- strange compulsion, or whatever it is. But the affinity is still there, even in those situations. So when people talk about hate comics, insult comics stuff, the ones that are really, really good are still trading in affinity. It's people loving somebody talking like that and getting away with it. People people busting everybody's chops you know, equally. You oh, yeah. Know, uh, equal opportunity offenders, that kind of thing.
0: Those of us old enough will remember the, I think, quintessential insult comic, Don Rickles and he he was so good. He had every politician, TV, radio, movie star, whoever lining up to be insulted by him because he was so good and so likable. You know, there's so likable. There's another British comic who's got a a tremendously odd laugh. I can't remember his name, but he's he's the same thing where he, he will open up his audience and say, okay, now now I'm everybody heckle. Anybody who wants heckle because he's a yeah. master heckle handler. He can and people go out of their way to insult the way he looks and he slaps back hard. And everybody loves it because they know the game, which is I'm gonna say something, he's gonna say something worse, and we're all
1: gonna laugh our heads yeah. off. But again, yeah. that cannot happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, Jimmy Carr. Yeah. yeah, Jimmy Carr wears a suit and uh, and and his and that's you know the, that, yeah right right and that's a great that's a great example because he is really not trying to be likable and he doesn't even seem like he would be likable. But I I have the suspicion that in life he is he is likable and that's that's maybe part of the the mystique. Is that when you want people to like you, like when you want to like somebody and you want them to be likable, you're fascinated with them and you stay with them and you kind of hold that place for them. Because he's playing like stadium sized crowds and just (laughs) saying the worst things to them. I mean, Anthony Jeselnik is another with a dark, very dark wit and you know it's coming. You just don't know exactly how he's gonna say something really dark, and he's gonna go somewhere really, really unpleasant. And he's okay with that. But we, when it comes to brands, I think some brands want very desperately to do that in some way because they recognize that it that it brings you closer, you know, to them. If they can just take you to the edge, and you can go to the edge together, then that brand. May have that affinity in a way that you know, and it has to be the right fit. It has guys like us, you know, people like us who are working in this field, you know, we're supposed to understand the the, the temperature of
0: that. Funny you bring that up because we're uh, we're recording this on Monday, December fifth of twenty twenty two, and right now, let's say the ad world is focused on as of last week into this week the, a certain scandal with a. Huge fashion brand, Balenciaga, which I can never yeah. say correctly, but let's just say they did an it, ad it campaign. It was very close. You did, did very
1: close. It's Balenciaga.
0: Balenciaga.
1: Balenciaga. Well, they, Balenciaga. for
0: those who weren't paying attention, they did an ad campaign that featured children in these kind of, they seem like realistic home settings or room settings, but the sets were very involved with a lot of uh, stuff all over the place, props and things like that and like there was a little girl holding a teddy bear, the teddy bear looked like it was wearing bondage gear. And then if you looked really closely at some of the papers surrounding them, it was referencing child pornography or something like that, like legislation about child pornography. So it was, as a creative director, I know exactly what happened. What happened was clients said, we need to maintain our edge in the fashion world. So we are giving you a little bit of rope to go a little bit further and take us right to the edge, but not beyond. Ad agency says, got it. And what they did was they took their edgiest people and put it on it. And those edgy people didn't have an adult in the room to say, whoa, 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 wait, that's one step beyond. And instead, they went one step beyond and it blew up in their face hugely. And that's the danger yeah. of not having an adult in the room, which is why sometimes I look at creative departments that are is staffed with nothing but 20 year olds and go, oh my God, you guys are in such trouble. You just don't know it yet. You're gonna run into something really, really bad really soon because you don't have the database of knowledge to understand that. No, 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 that's a no-fly zone. You can't, no, no, don't touch that. That's a live wire. That's a third rail, <laughs> don't touch that. But anyway, that's a, an example of what you're talking about. I want to go back to talking about comics, because every single comic, stand-up comic, is a personal brand. If I say certain yeah. comics' names, you're going to instantly say something about them. Like one of my favorites, Michelle Wolf. Michelle Wolf mm-hmm. is, has, can be credited with destroying the National Correspondence Center. Center. Yeah, yeah. She, <laughs> she went on. She, she told the truth in her own kind of one-step-beyond way. And absolutely blew that, what was called the geek prom of Washington, blew it apart. I love her for stuff like that. But your mileage may vary. Meanwhile, you get someone like Jim Gaffigan, who is, he's kind of America's big lovable dad bod, who will tell you funny stories Uh about his kids and eating and hot pocket and all that stuff. (laughs) And, and And you are delighted by it because, again, you know exactly who he is. Then you talk to another one of my favorite comics, Bill Burr, who you think you can peg him where he is politically, and then you'll find out, no, I was totally wrong, because he's always, you, is he a natural contrarian? No, he's not always contrarian, but he's always interesting, and again, your mileage may vary. You may be disgusted by him. Yeah. That's okay, but if you take a look at those three names, Michelle Wolf, Jim Gaffigan, and Bill Burr, you've got totally different people doing the exact same thing, and yet, yeah. in completely different ways. So, yes, personal well, brands are important, especially when it comes to allowing people to
1: decide which comedy show they're going to. With each of the ones that you mentioned great examples, by the way, of of these comedian brands. Each one of them is themselves. You know, Bill Burr, how he honed his his style was all about discovering that he should just be himself and not try to write stuff, not try to to contrive anything. Just talk to the audience like he's talking to his to his friends, and that's what he does. And the same way that friend of yours that just doesn't censor himself or herself, you know, can get themselves in trouble. That's what that's what Bill does. And, and if it gets in a little trouble, so what? And how serious is everything anyway? We're taking ourselves too seriously anyway. And, you know, Michelle Wolf at some point made, made a decision that that she was going to say what she thought and she was going to call out the humor and, and hypocrisy and whatever else she might see in it. And she was going to do that no matter what the cost. Then Jim Gaffigan is that you you have a trust that, a bond with him it seems like you know that that the kind of humor he's going to deliver is going to be so consistent that you're not going to really question it so if he takes the audience on a little bit of a, of a ride it's you're in such good hands with Jim Gaffigan you know you're like and the, and there are other comics in his category who are who are also great with that like you know Brian Regan mm-hmm. is 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 one where they have these really vast audiences really deep audiences really loyal audiences for 20 30 years and those people are coming to see them and coming back to see them because of the of the comfort and affinity that they have and the trust the bond that exists with those people i don't i think the trust is harder for brands to earn than attention You know, like the Balenciaga thing is a is a good example. It's baffling. You know, I was thinking while you were talking about it, I was thinking that, that, that they would they might say, Balenciaga might say, well, you don't understand. You missed the whole the whole point was that we were shooting in the valley and we had only a certain amount of budget for the house. And the house was used previously for another shoot. It was a different kind of shoot. And somebody left the teddy bear and we said, pick up the teddy bear. We don't know why. It's a budget. It's a budget, <laughs> you know? And it's like, well, there's no good way to talk out talk your way out of that scenario.
0: But Yeah, other than to say, hey, we, we took a mighty swing at the ball. We missed it. We apologize profusely. We understand where you're coming from. However, our brand will always be on the edge of your side. And mm-hmm. if you can't deal with that, Don't buy us because one of the things brands can do and do all the time is kind of, it's almost like based on who you are or your sensibility or even your budget, you can't afford us or you shouldn't afford us because that's the, the way we are. One of the examples I use all the time in my presentations is NFL football teams. You know, again, playing the same game, same equipment, slightly different colored uniforms, everything's the same. And yet, if you pick a team like the Dallas Cowboys and compare them with the uh, Las Vegas Raiders—or I know them as the Oakland Raiders—they'll always be Oakland in my mind. Yeah. You know, yeah. And ask which one is the Smashmouth football team versus the fancy kind of marquee team. Well, you'd say, well, Oakland Smashmouth, Dallas Cowboys marquee. Yeah, they are that. Yeah. And this is a story that I actually looked up. I was so intrigued by it. Why was why are the Dallas Cowboys known as America's team? Turns out, and uh, bear with me as I do my best NFL voiceover guy. On the frozen tundra okay. of Lambeau Field, the rise of new gladiators came about under the tutelage of Vince Lombardi. You know, those NFL films, well, back in yeah. like the late 80s, they were coming out with one film per team. And the title of the film for the Dallas Cowboys was America's Team. I am convinced the Dallas Cowboys marketing team said, oh, that's good. We're owning that. (laughs) And they took it and they ran with it. And now they still are America's
1: Team, even though they aren't America's Team in Wisconsin, let me tell you that much. Right, right. And who is America's Team depends on where, what state you're in. Yeah. You know. Yeah, for Um, sure.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you because Without going terribly deep into your background, you go on LinkedIn and you're from Los Angeles, but knowing where you are now, you're in Iowa City, Iowa? Iowa City, yeah. 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 And so I I just have to ask you this. You've been in both places. We're all American. Is there a brand-related difference to the people who live in Iowa City versus Los
1: Angeles? A brand-related difference? Yes. Yeah, there is. So Um, how how
0: would you describe those
1: brands? I would say that the, the Midwestern brand that I, would, I wouldn't, you know, Iowa City, I wouldn't single out, especially because Iowa City itself is a college town. So that, that's like a Big Ten town in a lot of ways. But because we're dealing with Iowa, we're dealing with the Midwest, it still holds true. It's a down-to-earth brand. It's an earthy brand. It's a practical facts-in-front-of-my-face brand and it's not what we've come to look at as aspirational. It's not an aspirational brand. And when I moved here, really for family, and be closer to family, my wife's family, I was still working I, and i continued to work remotely and traveling and with my office in Los Angeles. So it was, I dipped my toe only slightly into the advertising world in the Midwest, but I did very quickly learn that that was a different brand. The L.A. brand is very aesthetically motivated, very aspirational, very wanting to make dreams come true. And in the Midwest, that brand is dreams are are great, but you got to get up in the morning. You know, dreams are fantastic, but you got to get up in the morning and drive that tractor. That's that's what uh, what Iowa kind of says to me. And I I appreciate it. Having spent several years here, and I I kind of appreciate the reality check of it because I think it it, it was a lot of pressure being in in that Los Angeles dream factory. Yeah, oh boy, I tell
0: you, that's a, a I think I agree hundred percent with your assessment of both. Having lived in Hollywood literally for a, a yeah. solid year, that was a, that was a long year, let me tell you. But that's because. It was not for me. That doesn't mean it's not for you. That's the thing about a brand. No true brand is for everybody all the time. A true brand knows who they're best for, plays hard to serve those people that they're best for, and is okay with saying, you know what, maybe we're not the right fit for you. So anyway, what a great conversation with a fascinating person. I want to let audience members know about your podcast. So... Why don't you walk through your podcast where people can find them and how they can engage with you on social media
1: yeah well thank you thank you see i, I just felt like saying thank you david well I, you should because I, we're no we are
0: yeah. now far more intimate
1: we are well thank yes. you david for having me on the show so the yes brand podcast people can find at yesbrandmethod.com and then the the truth tastes funny. Podcast can be found at truthtastesfunny.com and then all of the players and all the all the things that are ways to to enjoy the podcast youtube and everything else everything's on there so those two websites and of course my site hirschrepoon.com which is on the on the screen there is always a good window into what i'm doing and yeah that's the the best way to get in touch with me is through the website through the HirshRepoon.com website there's a contact page and and I'm just really excited to be doing all these things kind of under this one umbrella of me. It's not a that that the, that everything falls under Yes brand. There's a, there's people hire me to do different things that don't require the, the Yes brand name or, or label. It's really bad. It's really about me being me. And yeah. that's that's really it. That's the simplest thing. And 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 that's that's the that's the dream, I think, in some ways. Yeah, well that it's so true. Just
0: if if you can create a personal brand that is you being you, absolutely true, or what I like to say completely true, completely you, you're on the right track. Well, thanks everybody for listening to this episode of the nonfiction brand podcast. As always, I would love for you guys to all like, subscribe, refer, and review this podcast because, believe it or not, those reviews actually do help other people find it. And, frankly, that's it for this week. And I am your host, as always, D.P. Knutson, And he is... Hirsch Rappoon. And I'll be talking at you all again next week. Bye-bye.